I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. Somewhere is like, you know, Jack Armstrong, Superman. It's all just as real as you are, and I am. <laughs> and the Lord and the angels in heaven, how about them? What do you think, they're the figment of somebody's imagination? Huh. Nobody makes up anything. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on WGDR. Wow. Some of the scenes you will witness may appear to border on fantasy. Look. Yes. It's the images. Everybody quiet. Just listen. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am a narrator. The voice that guides the blind. Following up with your ears, but your mind. And allow me to take you back on four feet time. Explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. I'm Tony Epstein, and welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour, a journey into the heart of things where we explore new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wonderful, crazy world we live in today. A word of warning, if you're squeamish or uptight about sexuality, you might want to change the station or turn off your radio. However, if you care about the fate of the world and how we may be able to save it, you just might want to keep listening. This morning, I am so excited to have on the phone with me an amazing and wise young woman who has blazed her own fascinating trail through a life full of great challenge 
to find what is most essential and important in a life truly worth living. From lost girl to powerful servant of love, Britta Love, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Hi, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you on. I'm so excited about doing this. You recently graduated from Goddard, and your thesis titled, The Poison is the Medicine, How Sex and Drugs Saved My Life and Could Save the World. It's just a brilliant and wonderful combination of traditional scholarly research and utterly engaging and fascinating personal narrative, including poetry and songs that you wrote along your journey. How did you end up at Goddard, and what was it about Goddard that lured you in? It really was a bit of magic that landed me at Goddard. I had never planned on going back to graduate school. I had done my undergraduate degree at the London School of Economics, which was about as far from Goddard College as you could possibly get. A very large and personal campus and the kind of school where you can go in once or twice a week for an hour and then you know, kind of lag your way through an exam at the end of the year and, and graduate with honors. So it was actually a few years after I graduated LSE that I happened to be sitting with a friend who was going through her own emotional turmoil and journey and actually was in an altered state. And at the end of her journey, she started kind of channeling things for me, which was very surprising. And one of the things she said is, you need to go to Goddard College. Now, she'd gone herself, and I kind of ignored it. And the next day, she sent me the link on Facebook as well to Goddard, and I thought, okay, let me click this open and see what this is about. And as soon as I saw there was a consciousness studies program, I knew I'd found the right place because I hadn't known you could study consciousness, and everything in my life that was important and valuable to me by that point was about consciousness. So I think it took me about two hours to make the decision to apply. I was right. I was ready to go. And I started six weeks later, and I have to say it was probably outside of some of the experiences in my thesis, one of the most transformational experiences of my life. So I'm also curious how your study may have helped you to make sense of and integrate your life experience. Sure. I think I've been really on the journey of trying to integrate all those things, you know, in a couple of years before I even came to Goddard. But I think the most important thing that happened once I got to Goddard, well, two things. One was I really found community. And it took me a semester or two to really recognized that I was in a safe community and I was in a real community for the first time in my life. But that process of realizing that I could be more out about my personal experiences in the world, which I'd never been, being out as a former sex worker on campus was a huge and life-changing thing to experience. I wouldn't be on this hall with you today if I hadn't experienced that first at Goddard. And then secondly, I kind of came in with this like, almost formed thesis in my mind. And, you know, how it is at Goddard, that always changes. And what Goddard really allowed me to do was to integrate my sense of sort of social justice that I'd grown up with and the ideas and the ideals that I had from my experiences and bring a more critical lens and a lot more nuance to my overarching idealistic idea. So I feel like Goddard both held me really safe and also broke things apart so that I could put them back together stronger and wiser. Mm, I'm so glad that it did, because your story (laughs) is amazing and wonderful. You wrote, I think because of my early sexual 
psychedelic and spiritual awakening experiences, I wasn't interested in the usual cultural desire to get effed up. I was already effed up. From an early age, I was moving in my own strange, lonely ways towards healing. Carol Gilgan writes about trauma as a shock to the psyche that leads to disassociation, a kind of healing response that creates a split within ourselves so that we can know and also not know what we know, feel, and yet not feel our feelings, which reminds me of reading somewhere that schizophrenia is a natural response to Western culture. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that in some ways my story can seem quite far out or extreme, and in other ways I think that I was going through something that I think most people go through being raised in our culture, and we just find different ways of disassociating or different ways of coping and surviving under what are like a series of really unusual and unnatural circumstances for humans to go through, you know, living under late-stage capitalism, living in a society that sort of demands social dislocation, where we don't have these natural sense of, of community and meaning in our life. So I just feel really blessed that by following the poison path, that by going really deep into the pain and the fear, that I was able to find some tools to bring me back. And for those things, I'm forever grateful for the trauma and dissociation. Well, let's talk about some of that trauma and dissociation and the impact of growing up under the oppression of our patriarchal culture Mm. on you as a girl. Yeah, it was sort of a really wild journey when I look back and I chart this in my thesis, my sort of sexual history, you know, because when I was really young, I was a very sort of embodied child and I had kind of hippie-ish parents. My father explained to me about the birds and the bees when I was like eight years old, except the lesson kind of came as, you know, that's a mature decision you make when you meet someone and you really care for them one day and, you know, there are consequences to that decision in terms of pregnancy and STDs, but if you touch yourself, that's fine. And I think that's like a very unusual upbringing to have. So I was kind of had this very connected, very joyful relationship to my body. And then I hit puberty and everything starts to look really different because when you come at it from having a very natural and embodied connection to yourself, and then you get this sort of imposition of this sort of pornographic lens and the way that you start being treated as a young woman by men. You know, I grew up in New York City, so my first sexual experiences were with strangers on the subway. And it's really disturbing to me that it really took me until maybe a year or two ago to consider that as traumatic because it was just normal. <laughs> it was just normal to have experience being groped as things that just happened on the way to school, on the commute to school. So I had this kind of break in my natural development where I suddenly started seeing myself as a young woman through this kind of pornified patriarchal lens and really push back and want nothing to do with sexuality because it felt like the only thing that came out of it was this sort of degradation and objectification. And I really had a hard time intellectually understanding why women wanted to have sex at all (laughs) from the representations that I saw around me once I first encountered Internet pornography, once I first had boys who I had crushes on who seemed to only want to interact sexually and push me as far sexually as I could go, which I was completely not open to. I was completely virginal until I was 18, which is another dichotomy in my life. 
So the forces of patriarchy played a very big part in how I and how I came to sex work and how I related to my own body. And it was a huge 180 degree turn from how I was as a child, and it took years to sort of swing back around to where I started and to sort of heal from that. Yeah, going into puberty as a young woman in this culture, is, it's a big deal. We don't really talk about that very much. Yeah, and there's not really any meaningful support for us as we go through that process. No, absolutely. And, and I'm glad you said us because I think it's just as disturbing and oppressive for men or anyone because we're just all socialized into these roles, you know. And I have a stepson, actually. He's 20 now, but... I've been with my husband from when he was 12, and I've watched him have to deal with the pressures of losing his virginity really young. So it's a lot for everyone, and you're right, there isn't much support, and because we're so sort of sex-phobic in our culture still, especially compared to a lot of European cultures, it's the only place that you're getting sexual messaging is from the media, which is the most sort of dysfunctional place to get it. I feel like it's so important. Like, I have so much respect for my father and the way that he tried to give me some kind of a reprogramming around sexuality because I feel like that's the only and best thing you can do in the face of the forces that are going to play themselves out around you once you're in middle school or high school and exposed to mass media, you know? Mm. What do you mean by the poison is the message, medicine? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of levels that you can look at that from. One is the sort of philosophical underpinning of my thesis is breaking down dualisms. And so there's sort of a breaking down in my thesis of the sacred and the profane, you know, the light and the dark, the poison and the medicine, mind and body or spirit and body. So it's just sort of an, another example of that in the context of my thesis. And but specifically... The very things that were fueling my dissociation were kind of manifestations of trauma in many ways. Becoming a sex worker at 19, becoming addicted to drugs at 19, turned out to be the medicine, the very things, specifically psychedelic medicines or drugs, and sex work and sexual healing work. They were one and the same thing, but I learned to experience them differently. My consciousness around them became different, and so... I think there's a lot to say for the poison paths or the left-hand paths or these paths that sort of don't make distinctions between this kind of like Judeo-Christian or New Age approach of like the good and the bad and the light and the dark. It's really about what can you unearth in whatever situation you're in and whatever you're experiencing, how can you turn the poison to medicine? Making use of whatever is given to you in the moment. Mm-hmm. I love the left-hand path. For that reason, it's so utilitarian. Yeah, absolutely. And it allows us to not have to split ourselves because I feel a lot of the time the reason that I have a very low tolerance for specifically New Age culture, I see a lot of people who feel the need to really fragment themselves into the people who are light beings and then to sort of push away the darkness that we all have and that actually holds, now I know from lived and embodied experience, a lot of treasures on Earth. So now I kind of have a tendency to want to sort of leap into those places because I know how rewarding it'll be after you get over the initial fear and darkness, you know. Right, and we'll probably get more into that when we start talking about psychedelic experience. Mm. 
So what was going on in your life when you first started doing sex work? And what inspired you to do that? Well, it was kind of a funny path because, as I mentioned, I, I wouldn't really let my boyfriends in high school get past second base. I identified really proudly as asexual, meaning I had no interest in sex or desire to change that. So when I moved to London in 2005, I was just about to turn 18, and I still thought I was going to be a virgin until I got married. That was a really big thing in my life for my mom, who was Catholic and her upbringing. And I sort of had, like, a series of, like, very short and intense relationships when I got to London that were sexual. And I think, in a way, I feel like I played out the Madonna horror complex in a lot of ways. That once I couldn't go back and become a Madonna again, I couldn't reclaim my virginity. I kind of felt like, well, then why not be the whore? Because that's sort of where society leaves you as a woman in terms of your choices for identity. And at the same time, I had always felt kind of magnetized to the word whore and call girl and prostitute on the page. I think that as someone who found myself very confused in high school because, you know, we would have our semi-formal and it would be at a former strip club and people would be dancing and the girls would be, you know, dancing in cages and on the platforms. And I knew so many girls who were, you know, giving blowjobs in the hope of getting the football player to date them for real. And I remember one time not being able to afford to go to a concert I wanted to go to, and I remember saying to my friend, who was like a vehement feminist, oh, I wonder, and I was only saying it half-jokingly, I'd never done this in my life, but I was like, I wonder how much a hand job goes for in Times Square, and she looked at me like, how could you even say that? And for me, it was like, wait, but we're supposed to perform all of this very sex work-like behavior, but I'm not supposed to actually capitalize on that? That was very confusing to me. And then finally, I mean, I guess those, those early sexual relationships I just found very disheartening. I just felt like I was performing a lot of, I wouldn't have used these words at the time, but emotional labor for fairly emotionally immature men and wasn't really getting what I wanted from the relationship. So all of these things kind of skewed together, and it was the first or second Christmas that I came home from London, and I picked up a diary of a call girl in Barnes and Noble in Florida, and I just felt like I was reading myself on the page. I just it was sort of about a half Jewish American girl who moved to London and became a call girl, and I was just like, I've always thought I could do this, and I'm reading this, you know, autobiography page after page, and and I easily could do that. So it was a kind of a strange way to get into sex work because I didn't know anyone in the sex industry. I didn't have any friends who were stripping or escorting. So I just sort of figured it out for myself, put some pictures up on the internet and thought, oh, I wonder how much I can get away with charging. It was a very kind of bizarre point of entry. And looking back, a huge leap of faith to make, being 19 years old, having only slept with three people a very small number of times, and having only performed oral sex once in my life, to believe that I could suddenly monetize and capitalize on that. So, yeah, it sort of stuns me looking back that I was even able to jump into it, but... There were like a number of things that felt really like they were pushing me in that direction, not least the desire to sort of capitalize on something that I was being sort of objectified for all the time. You know, being a young woman traveling the subways, being in relationships that were not really giving me what I wanted, it was sort of a way of saying, well, okay, fine, you know, I do have a curvy body and I do have nice breasts, and if you want that, you know, you can pay. And so, you know, I wouldn't ever say that was a healthy place to be in emotionally, but that would have been my experience, and that's 
why I made that very rational decision at the time. And it's so strange that on the flip side of that, in our culture, we actually condemn and outlaw coupling money with sex. Absolutely. And I have to say, because I was in London when I was working, that probably would have been a bit of a barrier to entry for me to start here because the legality is a whole other level of fear and stigma that's involved. And actually, there's a lot of dysfunctional laws about sex work that are very oppressive in the UK, and it's potentially getting worse with some of the current legal structures changing. But if you are an independent woman or person, because not all sex workers are women, and you want to exchange sex for money, that's actually perfectly legal. But you still have all the stigma, right? And so when I first started working, you sort of realized just how oppressive, like the sex work stigma comes up in so many small ways and unquestioned ways all of the time. You know, your joke about the prostitute in your average TV show or movie that has a very stereotypical portrayal of what a sex worker looks like and how they act and the sort of fate that they usually end up receiving in those stories. If there's one thing that I could say was absolutely, by a million miles, the most damaging thing about being a sex worker, it was dealing with the social stigma around it. It had nothing to do with any experience that I had with a client or anything about the actual physical work. And the most difficult thing to work through once I became a sex worker was, oh, wow, this is something I really can't tell many people at all. And, oh, wow, like, how do I have a relationship with someone who I would either have to lie to or who probably will run away once I tell them this. And in so many little situations, I now have to lie about my life. And in so many little situations, I have to not react emotionally when I feel like someone's saying something that's really upsetting about the work that I do. So I'm really grateful for that because I think even though I suppose as a woman I experience oppression, but, you know, as a white woman coming from a lower middle class family, and a relatively, you know, upwardly socially mobile, I hadn't really experienced marginalization in my life until that point. And it gave me a lot of insight into what it feels like to be on the other side of things. So I'm really grateful in a way that it was a very formative experience and it got me involved in activism. I became a sex worker activist. There's so many hot button kind of issues around sex work and the discourse around trafficking nowadays that makes it very difficult to have sort of rational and healthy and calm discussions, even with other women, and actually more so with other women at this point. So there's so much there, and I think it really reflects a lot of our own discomfort with sex and the ways in which we, especially as women, form our identities around not being whores. In the same way that I think a lot of straight men form their identities around not being gay. It's a sort of similar thing. And so the sort of porphobia and homophobia are things that sort of need to exist in order to validate and reassert and allow us to capitalize on the identities that we've signed up for at a young age. So it's really powerful, tricky stuff. Wow. So... What did you discover about yourself and about your sexuality and about sexuality in general after you started doing sex work that you didn't expect? Mm. Well, yeah, my kind of approach to it going in was, you know, I was going to get in and get out and, you know, counting the cash. And even my very first experiences, my first two jobs that were probably the most dysfunctional jobs I've ever worked, 
gave me incredible insight into the emotional labor that was required, into the intimacy that was actually desired. And it really humanized men for me. Not having really had long-term relationships with men in my teenage years, and having really internalized a lot of social tropes around what men actually need and want and internalized a lot of pornographic representations of what sex was for men, I just found it so surprising that men wanted to talk to me, that men wanted to perform oral sex on me, that men wanted to give me things, play music, create romantic atmospheres sometimes, that men wanted to cuddle after sex. That blew my mind. So... That was a huge shift for me. That sort of humanized men and made me realize how much men were actually suffering quite often under patriarchy, under these sort of social norms that, you know, forced them to perform a lack of emotion and a lack of embodiment in a lot of ways. And then once I sort of overcame that and I realized that that's what my clients were actually looking for most, if not all of the time, then I became a little bit more relaxed and trusting and open, and it was kind of this very natural, non-scripted sort of evolution of me being able to be more and more relaxed, comfortable, and in my body while I was working, and a lot more natural and myself, and I didn't feel like I needed to perform anymore because I felt like what was actually desired was some kind of genuine intimacy. And so that opened the door for me to become far more in touch with my own sexuality, which I'd really shut off when I hit puberty. You know, as someone who self-pleasured a lot as a child, I really didn't do very much of that as a teenager because I really wanted to push that away. And so coming back into my body and really experiencing pleasure for the first time and just starting to see the healing potential in that before I ever kind of got to some of the later stuff in my thesis around transcendence and spirituality, just the basic realization when I left a hotel room that we both were walking out of there better than we'd walked in, that we had experienced something that was really nourishing, that this person hadn't had someone to speak to, to lie with, to cuddle with, to relax with and experience those things with in their life, and now they've had that and that they're walking out nourished by what I did. So I started kind of taking on a sense of responsibility in my work. I wasn't able to kind of remain cynical around it anymore because it felt like there's something that's really needed here and I want to do my best to give it to the person who's paying me very well to be able to experience that. So it sounds like your experience of sex work is diametrically opposite the (laughs) societal image of it. Absolutely. It really is. And I want to say a few things here. One is there are as many experiences of sex work, I think, as there are sex workers. So this by no means invalidates someone else's story of feeling really oppressed or victimized by working in the sex industry. And also, I'm coming at it from a position of relative privilege. Like, well, about half the time I have had other options for work or had a partner who could support me. So I was most of the time able to be a little bit discerning in who I met. Not always. (laughs) And I did did have some experiences that were distasteful. But... I think what it really comes down to is that the idea that this work is inherently exploitative just doesn't hold up. It absolutely can and often is exploitative, but the fact that there's something inherent to transactional sex that is just always going to be a certain way doesn't hold up. And 
what that says to me is that it's our social norms that treat sex work as different from any other form of work that allows men to think that this is someone who is less than human because we dehumanize sex workers. That sort of allows our rape culture to go more fully expressed in the sex industry than it often is in other parts of people's lives. It's not always true either, but, you know, it's just a reflection of where we are socially around the work. And so to me, that's why I talk so much about stigma and sex work, because the stigmatization to me actively perpetuates the trauma and exploitation in the industry. You know, if you had a bad experience as a sex worker with a client who violated your boundaries or took a condom off or stole from you or raped you or beat you, and you could go to the police and say, hey, I was working in this customer exploited me, and that person would then be arrested and suffer the penalties for doing that in any other situation, we wouldn't have the society we have. But the truth is, if I went to the police when I was working and said, oh, hey, I was just raped and beaten and stolen from on the job, they'd laugh at me, right? Because, you know, you can't be raped. You're a sex worker. You're already a whore. So it's so deep, and it's it's so frustrating to me when I feel like people who have such good intentions about their feminism and their ideas around, you know, how to, to help sex workers really miss the ways in which they're actively perpetuating that exploitation. Yeah, there's quite a split, even within the feminist community, about how to deal with that issue. Mm, there is, and it goes back a long way. And I have a lot of compassion for the other perspective. I think I'm easily someone who, if I hadn't become a sex worker, could have felt that way. And it's also really easy under the current narrative of sex trafficking. It's like, how could you possibly disagree, right? You're seeing these terrible images of women who are being exploited, who are handcuffed to a bed, who are experiencing every form of exploitation. How could you possibly be against that effort to fight that? But the problem is that we've had this weird shift that happens kind of after the anti-porn, anti-sex group, like feminist movement sort of lost its power in the 80s and the 90s. It kind of reemerged under the guise of the anti-trafficking movement. And what happened is you have this kind of unholy alliance of evangelical Christians and radical feminists that have created these organizations that supposedly are there to combat exploitation in the sex industry. But if you really look at what they're saying... They refuse to acknowledge that there is ever the possibility of consensual sex work. And they refuse to use that word sex work even if someone identifies that way and says that they chose their work. And this is really dangerous because you're blurring lines and there needs separate words for how we deal with forced labor versus chosen labor with the asterisk that says that choice is a continuum and a lot of us wouldn't choose to work at McDonald's, but we do. And that happens a lot in sex work. I think that the narrative of, like, the happy, empowered hooker and the exploited street worker is, like, another one of those dualisms that we really need to break down because, like most jobs under capitalism, most sex workers are a lot more ambivalent about their jobs. And if we could start seeing it as any other job, that would be super helpful. And in doing that, we could make really clear lines like we do in every other industry that separates people who are working in exploitative circumstances from those who aren't. But that requires recognizing that it's possible to exchange sexual services for money in a way that's not inherently exploitative. And that's one of the things that motivates me to share my story is just that I think that the more sex workers speak out, 
the more impossible it becomes to deny that because there's a lot of us and the sex workers' rights movement has really exploded in the last five or ten years and that's one of the things that gives me the most joy is just starting to see how when I speak to young feminists they sort of take for granted quite often that sex work is another form of work and that is something that is so overdue. <laughs> hmm. So you write that sex and drugs are powerfully tied together in the American imagination through hedonism, scandal, taboo, stigma, and crime. Perhaps not coincidentally, they are also two of the most powerful, immediate, accessible, and universal ways to experience altered states of consciousness. It is precisely because they lead to these other states of consciousness the very states Western society often associates with escapism and even madness, that they are such profound tools for healing. Talk about yeah. that more. <laughs> sure. You know, I think one of the things I was trying to figure out when I came to Goddard was, am I just tying sex and drugs together because they happen to go together along in my life? Or is there something really deep happening here? What is it that these things together. And so I started really thinking about the ways in which we don't really think of sex as inducing an altered state of consciousness. We're just completely normalized to it. But anyone who's experienced a prolonged sexual experience or just an orgasm knows that your consciousness is not in the same place the moment after you have an orgasm as it was before you started. And we don't really sort of recognize or give any importance to that fact, but it, to me it's really important. And Drugs are, you know, quite obviously a way of altering consciousness. We usually see that as a very negative thing in our culture, which is very oriented to being in control, to being able to always function in a very certain way, in a way that most do living under capitalism, particularly. So the drugs that we allow for, Adderall, cocaine, caffeine, because those allow us to be sort of high-functioning or fast-performing workers, and then on the weekend you can go out and you can drink because that's how you sort of blot out the week. <laughs> and so we have sort of accepted modes of altered states of consciousness, but not really a place for being altered in a way that we refer to as stoned or, you know, in a psychedelic state. So when I started thinking about what was so taboo about these states, I realized that both of them really require this loss of control, this surrender. And we think of losing control as such a bad thing in our culture, you know? Like, I can't even count the number of people who, when I've spoken about psychedelics to them, have said, oh, I just don't like losing control. And I'm one of those people. I have a very strong kind of control freak impulse, and every psychedelic experience I've ever had has been difficult, which is kind of funny because it's like, why do you keep going back? And it's because it's so healing to start releasing control and seeing what happens when you allow for other ways of knowing and being to take place. So I think that there's this taboo in our culture against surrender, against letting go, and it's like antithetical to our almost our American values in a way. And yet there's so much that traditionally has been valuable. Psychedelic plants have been sacraments in most cultures throughout history. Sexuality has played a really important part in many spiritual traditions in history, and yet we've sort of completely blocked that off. So I just became really fascinated by how those things tie together, what we lose when we don't access those forms of consciousness, 
And they're not the only ways, obviously, to experience that meditation. You know, the Sufis go into their spinning trance states. Some people do it through drumming. Some people do it through dance. Some people go into a cave for months in the dark. You can find probably infinite ways to alter one's consciousness. But what fascinated me about sex and drugs is that they're right here. They're so present in our culture in this very superficial way, in this very taboo way, in this easy-to-really-giggle-at kind of way. And I think that taboo and that giggle reflects all of the hidden powers that we've lost access to. And so we're kind of fascinated, but we also don't really know how to go to the depth with them. And they're really accessible, and they're also really immediate. And the things that I came to understand and experience through these altered states are so important and linked what I think we need to experience and understand in order to shift our world. And so I'm really a proponent of the rocket launch to these altered states of consciousness because I feel like it probably would have taken me 20 years of meditation to get where I got in my early psychedelic trip. And it's not to say that was the answer. It's not a silver bullet. I still had to do years of integration work to make that part of my daily existence. But just to get there, to see the top of the mountain, to understand where we need to get to, to get that so instantly, it just seems really important right now. Mm, That is so beautifully said. And for me, I experienced psychedelics as a tremendous jumpstart to my spiritual process as well and awakening. Mm, mm. So I think that's such a profound lesson. And psychedelic drugs are also so stigmatized in our society most people are driven away by that stigma, by false propaganda, by false information, the false risks and dangers of psychedelic drugs. Absolutely. I was one of those people. <laughs> it's really ironic because when I was abusing speed and cocaine, which what I was using to get by when I was at LSE in my undergrad, and you know that was my addiction when I was 19, 20, 21, and I had a sex client who, who asked me one day, so what are your favorite drugs? And I said, oh, I like speed, cocaine, maybe some MDMA. And he was like, oh, well, I like MDMA, but my favorite drug is LSD. And I'd never met anyone, not knowingly, who took LSD or who talked about it. And it had been ironic because I had visited my dealer a week before and been offered LSD for the first time with one of those weird synchronicities. And I just remember looking at my partner and us looking at each other and going, like, oh, no, like, that's the one drug we'll never take, you know? Um, because, like, that stuff, you know, it's one thing to take some uppers and downers, but that stuff, you could lose your mind over a high. Why would you do that? You know, we really had that, like, people jump off buildings, you know, all of that really stupid programming, which we all kind of get, whether we're aware that it's wrong or not. And so then a week later, have this client who so passionate about psychedelics and it's probably the only job where we went over by hours and I didn't even think about charging him because he was just telling me all of these things about the way that these forms of consciousness are oppressed in our society and all that he's experienced and learned through them and I just walked out of there and I was so sold I was just like no we definitely have to try this and so it's a total paradigm shift and I think what's interesting for anyone who doubts that is even what I did was I, I took a half of a very weak tab of acid as our first experiment because I was still really nervous. And the first thing that happens when you take a low dose of a psychedelic is everything is more enhanced or you're more aware of, right? Like colors are more intense. You really feel, you really hear sound. You really see colors. You really feel your feelings. So I was like, how could this be a method of going into meaningless 
hallucinatory state, if the first thing that happens is reality is more real, I'm just more conscious and more in my body. So that kind of immediately told me that I must have received some bad information there. But it didn't stop that bad information from impacting my trips. I remember having a bad trip where my own anxiety was coming up, but I started thinking, oh my God, this is how people fry their brains on acid. Now, that idea wasn't my idea. That was a deep sort of internalized idea that I was then sort of living out because it was in my consciousness. So I find it fascinating the way our bad drug information actively harms people who are then in those states because it sort of plants those ideas in our subconscious in a way that's really unhealthy, and it creates a lot of fear and stigma around their use. So, sorry, that was kind of a tangent, but I just feel like it's really important. That was a great tangent (laughs) because it's a very complex topic and I don't think most people realize the incredible power and suggestibility of our minds Mm. that the thoughts, the ideas, the notions that are implanted in our subconscious or unconscious when we're growing up have tremendous power and influence over the future and present unfolding of our lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. In every way. So... It's really important, and in fact, that's one of the most interesting things or things that are not well understood by a lot of people about psychedelics is that the number one sort of factor, and I'm sure you know this, and how you experience a psychedelic experience is set and setting. In other words, your mindset, what you're bringing in emotionally, what's in your subconscious, what's present for you, and your setting, your environment, who you're with, what the environment feels like, how you feel about the people you're with, where you are. So... It's like we kind of like to think in a very sort of reductionist way about, oh, if I take this pill, it will do A, B, and C. And psychedelics are really frightening to a lot of people because it doesn't work like that. They're sort of nonspecific amplifiers of your own consciousness. And everyone's consciousness is so different, you know? Mm -hmm. So what LSD is for every person is going to be so different. And in every trip for that same person is going to be different. So I think that one of the things that has to happen for us to have a more intelligent conversation about these things is really understanding the way that our subconscious programming, our emotions, our environment are always impacting our life experience. And psychedelics just make that very, very clear. Yeah, and what we bring to it, whether unconsciously or consciously, has a tremendous impact in how we experience everything. And, as you say, especially a psychedelic experience, which just amplifies Exactly. And I and that sort of I just feel like so many things that you learn about life through psychedelics are so widely applicable to life. Like I feel like a lot of the things that often I'll end up talking about what's the best way to facilitate a psychedelic trip or like, you know, what do you need to know going in? They're all things that are really just what's happening in life but we're seeing them in a different, more clear and amplified way. Now that we've dived into this realm of psychedelics, I would like your sense, your take and your experience of how psychedelics impact our consciousness and the way we see the world around us and the way it reveals things that prior to that altered state of consciousness we were unaware of. Yeah, I think that psychedelics allow us to kind of get behind the master controls in a way of our brain and sort of not to necessarily control things while we're in that state but to sort of really see what's happening behind the scenes. So they allow us to access parts of our unconscious that we normally aren't aware of. They allow us to experience different aspects of our consciousness that we're not even 
really aware are happening. Like for me, I, I never realized I had anxiety. I laugh really hard every time I say this, but I, I never realized I was an anxious person until I took psychedelics. I never slowed down enough to realize that. In retrospect, I was an incredibly neurotic and anxious person, but I just thought I was normal. You know, it kind of took a bad quote unquote trip where I was in a safe space so that it didn't become like a really traumatic trip. So I was home in a safe space with my partner to calm me down and keep me safe. And because I went into that really deep paranoia and anxious state, I was more able to identify the ways in which that anxiety was threaded throughout my whole life. And I was also given a lot of insight into what that anxiety was connected to, the need to control fear and mistrust of the universe. So that's like one example. And then in general, I think psychedelics are so powerful because they make you really aware of interconnectedness of all things. And that seems to be like a pretty universal, even in some of the studies that they're now doing at Johns Hopkins on the mystical experience and psilocybin magic mushrooms, there's certain things that are like signature aspects of the psychedelic experience. At high doses, those are things like really transcendent mystical experiences, which happen differently for different people, but seem to be very common at those high doses whether it's an experience of God or Jesus or the oneness of all things or the ego dissolving in some form. And then even on those lower doses, realizing the ways in which all life is interconnected and the way that there is sort of these inextricable links and that things aren't as solid and separate as our mind makes them appear in order for us to function in our normal sort of everyday social consensus reality survival mode which is a really important mode. That's like you need to be able to function in that mode most of the time. But most other cultures have had a place where it was safe and designated that now is a time that you can let go of that mode and see what's valuable about not being in that mode and bring that information back, which is going to make your everyday functioning survival mode more efficient and more enlightened in some way. I often say it's hard to... Like explaining to someone who hasn't had a psychedelic experience what psychedelics are like is like what you saw through a microscope to someone who's never been able to look through a microscope. It's kind of, they're these sort of tools, and they're not inherently good or bad. Like, they're tools, so they have to be used wisely and with intention, because they could also be really horrific tools. If you wanted to torture someone, I can't think of any better way than to dose them in a really unsafe environment. And our society, um, our culture does that to people deliberately, just to explore totally. the negative possibilities. Totally. And that's why, in a way, it's just as intimate, if not more intimate, than the sex aspect of my thesis is like the intimacy of your personal consciousness and what happens when you're in those vulnerable, altered states, which is why like, you know, there's a lot of discussions in the psychedelic community now that ayahuasca, which is an Amazonian plant brew, has become quite popular in the last few years, which is heavily psychedelic, the active ingredient DMT, which is dimethyltryptamine. It's actually naturally occurring in our own brains that might be responsible for the dream state. And now that it's becoming more and more popular and people are traveling down to Peru and Brazil or having, you know, people who come here, these sort of neo-shamans or traditional curanderos who are performing these ceremonies, and you're hearing a lot of tales of these sort of male healers, quote-unquote, who are very exploitative of some of the women who come to drink ayahuasca with them. I mean, I can't think of a more brutal form of exploitation than to sort of sexually exploit someone while they're in that state because you're so open and so vulnerable. So alongside all these discussions, it comes back to that idea of set and setting and, you know, being careful who you're 
tripping with and what are your intentions going in and are you in a safe space to deal with some really intense and dark stuff that you didn't even necessarily know was there to come up. You know, not to frighten people too much, but it is a serious thing. Like, I always think of it as, and I'm very aware of this because I'm a very anxious person, so everything really has to be just right for me to feel safe and to have a positive experience tripping or to have a safe space to have a dark experience that becomes positive. But I always think of it as, what do you do when you're going on any other kind of trip? You know, you pack your bags, you plan it ahead of time, you design, you know, where you're going to be traveling, you set up that environment. Those are all things we do when we plan a trip, so I think those are really important for psychedelic trips as well. And speaking of set and setting, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. I'm speaking with Britta Love. She did an amazing thesis titled, The Poison is the Medicine, How Sex and Drugs Saved My Life and How It Could Save the World. I'm so glad that you brought up how psychedelics can be so similar to the experience of sexual intimacy and also dark trips. Dark trips are like penetrating the poison inside of us, giving us the opportunity to turn it into medicine. Whenever I did psilocybin mushrooms, I always went through a journey through the underground which was very challenging. And there were times when I really wondered whether I would ever emerge from that. But I always mm. did, and I never had a bad trip. But again, as you mentioned, set and setting are so important. And I always brought a sacred intention to my psychedelic trips because I knew that they were powerful tools for conscious awakening and study. Yeah. That term of the psychonaut you know, journeying into other states of consciousness or altered states of consciousness, whatever that might mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know that even the, the phrase altered states, it's something that I kind of railed against because once you've experienced enough different sort of forms of consciousness, you start to realize that even the assumption that we all have a normal, equal state of consciousness walking around is doesn't really work that way. I mean, we never know fully what it's like to be in someone else's everyday consciousness, but I could promise you that different people are experiencing, right? Like, we could be in the same room and we're experiencing different facets of that. Our focus is on different aspects of what's happening, so therefore our experience is entirely different. So altered depends on the idea of there being a normal or a default to begin with. So it's sometimes I say othered forms of consciousness can sort of laser in on that a little bit. And really important to mention here that, like, we're having this psychedelic renaissance in medicine right now. Actually, just last week was probably the best week for psychedelics since Nixon because we had the FDA approve MDMA in the last stage of clinical trials before it's allowed as a prescription medicine for PTSD, which is amazing. And we had the new study on psilocybin mushrooms and the incredible efficacy in helping people who are in late stages of terminal cancer overcome anxiety, depression, and their fear of death, which is really, really beautiful work. So that's all happening. But at the same time, I always bring up the fact that this is not new. This is very ancient practice. These are practices, in fact, that some of the same people who are doing these researches at NYU and Johns Hopkins, their ancestors would have been involved in actively oppressing and repressing these practices that were happening in indigenous cultures throughout North and South America before they were colonized. So there's a really strong political thing to recognize here, too, especially as a white Westerner, speaking for myself, who has learned and 
valued a lot of the experiences I've had through these plant medicines that now, you know, every 20-something slightly bohemian person wants to go and pay to go to Peru to drink ayahuasca, but 200 years ago, people were being killed and threatened for drinking ayahuasca by probably some of our ancestors. So it's, it's a really powerful thing, and so I think that as we come back to these medicines, finding ways in which the cultural exchange that's happening is equal, finding ways to really implement some of the expanded states of consciousness and new understandings that we have in a way that have a, a social justice approach and a, and a sustainability approach for a lot of these plants to make sure that they're not being over-harvested, that the people who normally use these medicines up until the last decades are not losing their access to these medicines because they're becoming more expensive or catering towards white tourists, and just generally recognizing that these forms of healing and spirituality are really old. And we could also find them in, in our own cultures, looking back through Europe as white people, but they were stamped out a lot longer ago, for the most part. So quite often the way that we reconnect, if we're using any kind of traditional cultural framework, like drinking ayahuasca or eating peyote, or taking iboga, which is a Central African root bark, are within cultural contexts that are not our own, which are always tricky and always need a lot of thoughtful consideration when embarking on. Mushrooms are a little different because they grow in most places and they're a lot more universal and they're kind of like the most egalitarian way of tripping in a way because you can grow them at home, you can find them in the field, there's all different kinds that grow all over the world and they're not limited to any one specific tradition, although it's important to know that the only reason we rediscovered them was because of the Mazatec practitioners in Mexico that were sort of rediscovered in the 50s. It's interesting, that's one of the things that happened when I came to Goddard was realizing I had this, and now we can cherry pick from the spiritual traditions of the world and all the sacraments of the world and we're going to evolve this amazing new global tradition. And it was a very like idealistic, hopeful perspective, but it didn't actually acknowledge the spiritual bypassing all of the the history of trauma and colonialism that's also attached to these plants that we need to address if we want to do something that really is an evolution of consciousness and an evolution of our culture that really does bring us to a level past kind of continuing to perpetuate a lot of colonial legacies of exploitation. As a species, we really need to learn to respect the other in all forms. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that psychedelics really help us to learn if we approach it in a respectful and intentional way. Absolutely. And I was at an event here in New York last night. It was a sort of a discussion, psychedelics and social change. And it's one of the interesting things that we talk about is that on one hand, the substances do seem to be inherently revolutionary and inherently radical in the insights they can give us. And on the other hand, quite often you see countercultures that are using psychedelics that claim to be experiencing these expanded states of consciousness that don't actually match up to what we would hope we would see if they really were. For example, the psychedelic community is overwhelmingly white. You know, it's overwhelmingly white. And the speakers at psychedelic conferences are overwhelmingly white men. So it's like, how can we be expanding and understanding the other and yet also perpetuating some of the worst structural injustices that our culture has traditionally had. And my biggest breakthrough was being exposed to the cultures of 
Gabon and the traditional ayahuasca cultures of South America because I approached them with a very kind of dysfunctional approach of, oh, these are going to be the perfect people who've had this sacrament for thousands of years and are really going to know how to do life. You know, we're really going to have gotten over all of this dysfunctional separation by gender, by race. And they were really, really strongly patriarchal and really dysfunctional in all sorts of ways. And also there's a colonial influence there, but just no more, no less than our culture in, in a lot of ways. And I think that psychedelics can also be used to reinforce the current social framework just as much as they could be used to question them. So I think a lot these days about how we frame our intentions going into these states, how we create containers that are not oppressive to certain people. Like I've had very traumatic experiences as someone with experiences of sex work going into psychedelic ceremonies where the word prostitute was used in a really pretty terrible way. I see a lot of very heteronormative ceremonies that talk a lot about the male and the female in a very binary way that I know that most of my queer and trans friends feel very actively oppressed by. And that's like really important when you know, someone's going into that really vulnerable state, you know, to know that there's safety. I have also noticed that most of the ayahuasca circles I've been aware of in, in the U.S. are overwhelmingly middle and upper class white people. So, you know, just finding ways to make sure that we break those patterns, that we use our psychedelic insight to create new models and new ideas and new forms of connection that then we know we're using psychedelics to their full potential. And speaking of using psychedelics to their full potential, you quote from Giorgio Samarini's Animals and Psychedelics, and you talk about intoxication as being the fourth drive, that even animals engage in this. I'd like to get into why animals would seek states of intoxication, which would essentially leave themselves vulnerable to predators. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating. And I think that up until recently, researchers have seen them as sort of kind of isolated, kind of outlier cases. And what we're now starting to realize, Ronald Siegel and Giorgio Samarini really bring their attention to, is the fact that this is a universal fourth drive to seek states of intoxication. And what's interesting is it's usually a small percentage of the species. And I think a lot about this because it's sort of the section of the species that are experiencing these other ways of being, which may or may not be helpful evolutionarily. But when they are, they are the mutations that drive evolution. So the idea is that, you know, you have mutations in behavior. How do you create mutations in behavior? And I think Samarini calls this, like, depatterning factors. Like, and he says that intuition is one depatterning factor, right? If you sort of intuitively feel something that's different than you would normally do that day and you follow it. Humor is one way. You know, humor can break certain paradigms in really interesting ways. I think the power of humor is really fascinating. And then altered states, altered states which allow you to experience the same world that you're living in every day completely differently and come up with different ideas or ways of acting or reacting to it. So that idea then that, you know, the war on drugs could be seen as a war on our own evolution because we're actively limiting, right? I just the, love the, that line. <laughs> that, to me, struck me as being one of the most brilliant connections that I've seen made. 
Yeah, it's really like overwhelming and almost depressing, you know, when you think about that, um, especially in in light of where our drug war really stands and what's happening around the world right now in the war on drugs. And the current Mm -hmm. ecological crisis that we're experiencing. And at the time, we seem to be actually moving backward evolutionarily. At least it (laughs) seems that way at the moment. And what more important and critical time in our evolutionary history to have something to stimulate a real, meaningful evolutionary growth. After the election, for about a week, I was really paralyzed. And I thought, oh, my God, how can I go on posting about sex and drugs on my Facebook and my blog right now when this is happening? And then I kind of went for a really long hike in the woods, and it occurred to me, like, how can I not? Because this is really the time where we need these radical changes in our collective consciousness if we're going to move through and out of this. At the same time, it feels really important to say that the way I've been coping with what's happening in the world has been really informed by my psychedelic experiences. And I feel like right now we're in that part of the trip when you really go into the darkness, you're in the depths of your unconscious. And, you know, all of these elements that we're now shaking our head in disbelief right every day at the next headline, all of these elements that we're seeing coming to the surface, they were there. They didn't get created overnight. They're being empowered in new ways. But by being empowered, they're also being made more visible. And so I've come to really think of this as the time of this great unmasking or unveiling that's happening. And it's a really dangerous path. It's like my friend who recovered from a a 30-year cocaine addiction said it. He said it reminded him of, like, the last years when he just decided, went into the deepest binge of his life, and yet that was the thing that was the impetus for him to come to his psychedelic healing that helped him heal his addiction. And he said, it's kind of a gamble, like it's, like it's a game of Russian roulette. It's like either this is the thing that allows us to sort of see everything from what it is and push through and decide, no, this is not what we want, or this is how we end our human history. So it's a bit of a high-stakes game, but it feels really important to bring a little bit of that lens to it, and especially even with Trump himself, which... I mean, if you think of him as an embodiment of some of the worst aspects of American culture, of sort of narcissistic, greedy, sociopathic, toxic masculine culture, and having him as a sort of mirror that's there now, like, every day in our face, and we have this opportunity to both better understand that behavior and decide how we deal with it as a society, well, I think that's really important in a culture where I think that sociopathic and narcissistic traits are actually what's driven us to this point. So I, having a psychedelic lens kind of keeping me sane right now. Mm. Yeah, I can relate. And this might be a really good time for one of your poems. I'm thinking oh. of, of the one on page 151. Oh, yeah. Find the treasure, find the trove. It's in the unconscious, endless cove. Deep in the ocean, have no fear. Just because it's pitch black in there. This is your channel, is your source. But first you'll have to file divorce from the old god, dogma-isms, things that create endless schisms. Twixt nature and self, source and I, in this surrender, true power lies. I love that. I love so much of the poetry that you shared in your thesis. And it reminds me of back in the days when I was doing LSD. I would always end the trip by asking what I could bring back 
because I could never bring that level of consciousness back with me. So mm -hmm. I asked for something that I could bring back that would translate mm -hmm. somehow. And every time I was given the same message, and it was this very, very deep, soft, relax. Mm -hmm. Just relax. <laughs> Yeah. And it's amazing how, at least in my experience, when you get those messages and or that distillation of everything you've experienced down to what a little bit of it you can bring back, it's so embodied. When you think back to that word, that phrase, or that moment, that vision, whatever it is, it's so deeply planted that a simple word that becomes like a mantra like really does connect you back to the new neural pathways that you opened up in that exploration. And it brings us to the question of integration, which is so important. And you basically developed a very intuitive integration practice of really wondering, okay, how can I bring this back and what's going to be my connection back to this in my day-to-day -day life? And that becomes such an important part of these experiences having any lasting impact and having something like that that brings you back to that experience and I always think of it as especially around addictive patterns but really for all kinds of things in our life that we want to move through or pass through psychedelics it's like we've got these well-paved highways in our brain and we're kind of you know zooming down them every day and then we go into these altered states and we sort of pave these new dirt roads these new connections between different you know synapses that never occurred before and then it's like, what do you bring back from that experience to remind you and help you stay connected to that new path so that you continue walking those new roads that they become just as well established as the old highways? And I think that's such a beautiful example of having those messages distilled down to something that you can carry with you. <laughs> and the profound importance of knowing how to use these psychedelic tools in a really, really meaningful way. Yeah, and that's why I think that decriminalization or the medicalization of certain psychedelics is like one tiny bit, and then there's this whole new world that we're exposed to of, well, how do we use these wisely? How do we use them for different purposes? How do we use them safely? Like, what else are we going to learn about our own consciousness? What paradigm shifts are we going to experience in a much wider sense across our culture from having a more psychedelic lens? That question really blows my mind because I just think that this really is like the discovery of the telescope or the microscope, but for human consciousness. And I think it's going to have ramifications across the board, which is why there's been such heavy pushback against them because they really are going to be paradigm shifters. And at the same time, how are we going to introduce them into our world in a way that, you know, I left my, at the end of my thesis with so many questions seeing already the way that certain people who have certain good health insurance are going to be able to access prescription mushrooms that, you know, at their doctor or the ways that we really need to stay connected to the inspiration and understanding that we have through these altered states and keep that awareness while we're setting up the new structures of how we access them and how we make sure that these truly are radical change makers in our culture and don't allow them to be subsumed. In the same way that you can kind of see, to an extent, yoga and meditation, mindfulness have been, you know, now you have corporate mindfulness. Mm -hmm. you know, you, Commodified. And, 
Exactly, commodified. And like, you know, could you work for Goldman Sachs and then go on the weekend to drink ayahuasca so that you could be a more efficient worker in the office on Monday morning? Mm -hmm. You know, just being really conscious of that because they are tools. And I think a lot of us in counterculture assume that they're going to be the same for everyone who takes them and inherently radical. But I think that there is a kind of thing of the people who tend to have these experiences are already a bit radical because we're already doing something illegal and heavily stigmatized. And what happens when the sort of vast mainstream have these experiences? To some extent, they're going to experience the interconnectedness of all life and those things that I think are really inherent to the plant's messages themselves. But they're also going to be doing them within a, a set and setting, a framework that doesn't really encourage revolutionary change. And so we just have to be careful about what frameworks we want to create to encourage certain kinds of critical thought and certain kinds of loving connection and interconnected awareness and community that we want to create and hope that these plants can help us humans finally learn how to manifest for our world before we exterminate ourselves and everyone else. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't have said it better. And we should be teaching this in college, in institutions of higher education. This should be front and center. And it should be taught in a deeply intentional, intentionally sacred way. Absolutely. I actually am so inspired at the last Horizon Psychedelic Conference. I met an amazing man, Ken Tupper, who is developing programming for entheogenic education. And, of course, it's thinking ahead because, you know, no government's ready to implement that right now. But thinking 10 years ahead, perhaps, you know, entheogens being another word for psychedelics means generating the divine from within. What does entheogenic education look like? Even from, like, a young age, not necessarily introducing those substances, but almost applying the lessons and understanding from them to our education of young people. So that there isn't this extreme cognitive dissonance between the programming that we receive growing up and then what we then experience in psychedelic states. So I think there's a lot of promise and so much possibility for the future. I think it's one of those moments, you know, when LSD was discovered was like the same time as the atom bomb was developed. It feels like we're having this, and people always said it's like this equal and opposite reaction almost. It's mm-hmm. like there's both at the same time, and it's like here we are, we have... Trump in office with the most regressive, unthinkable things happening, and we have this psychedelic renaissance in the underground that's really reaching the mainstream at the same time, which will which will out, we'll see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and our current ecological crisis is clearly a lack of connection to an, an awareness of our environment, of having a direct empathetic relationship with our world. And, Absolutely. And that's what sex and drugs, these psychedelics really can offer us and can teach us to connect with. Absolutely. It's about kinship and it's about reconnecting. And it's really, I always say it's no coincidence that like the only major culture in history that has no entheogenic tradition is the one that's brought us to the point of extinction, right? Because that's traditionally what these plants do is remind us of those connections. And also we've repressed sexuality, which sexuality is something that also reminds us and brings us into this sense of connection So I kind of felt silly when I was titling my thesis, so I had to put, you know, how they saved my life and in parentheses and could save the world. But I I really do think, not in a very simple way, with a lot of thought and a lot of intention and a lot of shifting, that sex and psychedelics are two of the most powerful tools we have available to make this shift and reconnect and save our world. 
I feel the same way, and I've enjoyed this so much, and I definitely want to have you back at least a few more times because there's <laughs> so much more to talk about. We kind of just scratched, well, we, d we went pretty deep into some of the areas that we went into, but there's so much more in your thesis and so much more that I know that we could get into, and I've so enjoyed this conversation. Oh, so have I, Tonya. Thank you so much for having me on, and I really look forward to continuing the conversation. And that was Britta Love, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Until next time, have a wonderful week, and explore your consciousness in any way you can. <laughs>